Hello, and welcome to yet another episode to live through of Hysterionics. I'm Tom Crawford, in my cupboard, in a forest in France. And I'm Francie Murphy, sitting in the sunshine in Hampshire this morning, actually, Tom. It's lovely down here. Yes, and we should also point out that Clancy is having technical issues with her super-duper fancy earpod, earbud, <laughs> teenager... <laughs> Yes, I don't know why I even thought it would be a good idea, Tom. Honestly, I was just trying to get the things to connect. And all the teenagers walk around with them sticking out their ears like they're Lieutenant Uhuru from Star Trek and I can't make my work. But anyway, I'll have to just talk into the machine instead. Yes, but Clancy, you and I are both menopausal. We should not have such high technology. I've got... I've got pluggy in ones and uh, into the computer that is, and they those work just fine. The only reason I mentioned it because it might sound a little echoey because you're in your greenhouse of an office. <laughs> I am. It's quite chilly this morning too, so if you hear sort of chattering, that'll be my teeth. <laughs> um, how has your week been so far? It's been a really interesting week in the company that I work for uh, in my day job. Uh, it has been our year end on the 31st of October. So uh, it's been really busy. Uh, I also work for a company which is very linked to the defense industry. So this yesterday being um, Armistice Day, uh, we have a number of things going on around the business mm-hmm. on that, uh, which is always a really good pause for reflection and also reflection on why what we do is a good thing as a company. Um, so yeah, it's been busy. And, and obviously here in the UK, we're in lockdown again. So that's changed the dynamic in my family life once again. Uh, so yeah, busy. Uh, Pretty, pretty jolly though. Uh, it's jolly today because the sun's come out and jolly today because uh, we are almost halfway through the UK lockdown and so we've only got another couple of weeks I hope to endure. Well we're, we're, we're in lockdown in France which is having a psychological toll I think if I'm really honest. Uh, we, we have to go through police checkpoints and uh, the government have said that they're going to be more draconian about that because the numbers aren't shifting as well as they should. But you're right, the sunshine does help. I am very busy at the minute with mental health work, uh, which is really exciting me. I had a fantastic time talking last week to a company called CDK Group. They do very cool technological things with cars and car data. And I had the honor and privilege of talking about breaking the glass floor uh, to about 300 of their colleagues, and we've had lots of chats afterwards, so that feels very positive. Uh, the dog has an issue with her anal glands, but I probably don't need to go into that detail, do I? It was all going so well until you mentioned that. I know, I know. I, I want to uh, move away from Purdy's anal glands and uh, talk a bit about the work you were doing with CDK and the discussion around breaking the glass floor, because I think there's a few things in there which are going to be picked up in what we're going to be talking about this week, aren't they, Tom? I think so. So it, it's, as we head into another lockdown, I was, or an extended lockdown on both sides of the channel, I was reflecting that, you know, when you and I started this podcast back in the spring, I don't know whether it was naive or optimistic, but, you know, we were sort of psychologically seeing um, COVID as being a until autumn type thing. And it seems to be going on and on and on. And I think we've been in how do I cope and survive mode. And I think we now need to move to adapt mode. And a couple of milestones this week for me. First of all, was the the mental health talk. And I thought if I'd done it a year ago, I'd have 
gone to an office somewhere, I would probably have been able to get about 60 people. But because we were forced to do it online, it made it so much more accessible to so many more people. And I'm at the end, well, at the end of phase one of a big global DNI project with a really lovely client. And I suddenly realized this week, Clancy, that we pitched the project won the project, delivered the project, did all the research phase, the focus groups, the interviews, the workshops, have done the strategy sessions and the board sessions. We've done it all online and we will get to the end of phase one never having physically met in person um, anybody. And it is, isn't it? And we, we sat and did the first episode in the middle of May and you're absolutely right. At that point, we were thinking, well, you know, we've probably got the summer to get through. It's going to be a bit challenging, but we'll get there. We're now in the middle of November and we're still in not a dissimilar position to where we were in May in, in any country. Um, and you and I have done, well, this is episode seven of these podcasts and we've done five of them together. We've not actually met in that time. And the thought a year ago of doing a project like this, yep. uh, getting something up and running, getting it going, launching it, talking to, to so many people, bringing so many guests in, but never meeting physically. I don't think, I knew it would be possible, but I'm not sure it's something I think I would have done. But that, that is what we've done. And, and that's the new way of working, isn't it? We're all, and that's what we do. And, and so I think what I want to do this week is have a conversation around the future of work. Now that is a big conversation. And it's not a one-off conversation because it's a huge topic but it really seems prescient. So we'll probably just touch on a few pieces of it or a few aspects of it. And then I'm going to speak to uh, Dr. Keith, um, my academic chum, and get his views on the future of work. Dr. Keith teaches the MBA program at uh, the Aston Business School in Birmingham. Um, and I've and met Dr. Keith a number of times. He's, you he's, have. He's got really great energy, um, really great energy. And... I think we'll bring a lot to this conversation from a very different perspective. Because um, you say he's, he's a professor, he teaches at Aston University, he has a, a, a wider view than perhaps you and I can have at the moment. I'm really looking forward to hearing him. But you know, there's something really annoying about him. He's extremely young. So my, <laughs> I know it's ridiculous. Um, my cultural references, like things like, are you being served and dad's army and other things. No clue. Absolutely no clue and uh, so we have this expression between us which was if i talk about something and he's looking a bit blank faced he says is that before keith or after keith so you know he's not as perfect as you think he is so i you know when you talk about the future of work i bet there are a number of people listening that think oh okay it's going to be a bit futurology he's going to talk about artificial intelligence and working with robots and we're not going to do that today it's not the jetpacks and flying cars version of the future of work we will do that we'll get the appropriate guest and expert in to do that we with us because there's, there's, there's definitely miles in that and we, we should talk about it we should we should but whatever the future of work in terms of tech and artificial intelligence and robots it will force an even stronger lens on the human aspects of work because we need to understand how humans work uh, in that new context. And I don't think we've done enough of that already. So today we'll talk about the, the sort of psychological aspects, the people aspects, the uh, aspects of the future of work as it's shaping up now that impact the way people feel and behave because I passionately believe great brands are built inside out through people and they always will be. 
So I think we're going through a huge calibration. Uh, and I know that's an obvious thing to say. And let me put it into context. I think the early 2000s were the last major calibration. And I think that was when we had a new generation coming into the workforce, Generation Y, with their different and confident perspectives, coupled with a boom in tech and tech companies. That calibration saw the start of the death of a job for life, or uh, also of a louder cry for work-life fulfillment. And I think as demographics started to shift, I think it saw the start of a more meaningful discussion on diversity and inclusion. So I think that was the last major calibration. And I think what is happening now will take much of that earlier calibration and fast track it further. Why would I say that? Because if we look over the last few months, the corporate soul searching re Black Lives Matter, just one example, which showed that many, many corporates had at best paid lip service to the real deep human issues faced by colleagues and customers alike. COVID, for so many reasons, has made people stop and think, I don't want to work like this. There is a different way to work. And then you add in the sort of geopolitical issues which challenge humanity in so many ways, from healthcare provision to the impact of climate change. I think this calibration is rightly bringing raw humanity into the workplace. And I think and I hope this will shape the future. What do you think, Clance? I'm, I'm absolutely with you, Tom. Uh, and I think you have you have moments in history, don't you, where things should blow your issue quickly, and, and there's always a, a catalyst for that. This, this year has catalyzed and crystallized a lot of what was already coming. There's this growing movement, as you said. Yeah. This growing movement anyway. What's happened this year has really crystallized that. And from an organizational point of view, I think what that means is the sort of talent management approach that we envisaged a decade ago, and we referenced a decade ago is now completely different. At that point, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, as a talent uh, review at organisationally, we'd talk about what was happening before we hired someone and we'd then build this life cycle, which is you know, pre-hire stuff all the way through to the point where someone might retire from the organisation. And actually, generally, our employees join that party. But yep. now what's happening is they're not. They're saying, no, hold on a second. We, we're not interested in that whole end-to-end -end employee life cycle shenanigans. We want to understand how we add value and at what point, how yeah. we can move around an organization, and frankly, how the organization is going to match my needs. That, that's really where the, the balance has shifted from the, the, the talent matching the organizational needs to the organization matching the needs of the talent. And that's, so. really and that's really what you're talking about. I think so. I, th I think that the uh, balance of power is going to shift to the employee because the world is so moving so fast. We're going to have to uh, stop viewing people in terms of roles, but in terms of potential and, and capability and skill sets so that we can move them between roles that didn't exist when they started with the organization. Uh, and I think people, you know, those of who are able to with the there's personal circumstances. I think many more people are saying, look, actually, I want to work in a different way. I don't want to sign up for your one size fits all organizational culture. You know, you're too much of a clan at best. You know, at worst, you're a bit of a cult. I actually want to join a community where I can genuinely be myself. And actually, I don't want your one size fits all pay and benefits. I don't want um, the training and development that you've got on offer. I want to lease myself to you 
uh, and instead of being managed, I want the psychological freedom of just operating to a service level agreement. Um, and I, I wonder, I hope, I wonder if we're moving to an era where in the same way that we've been able to tailor and shape, as you and I have discussed, purchases that we make in our private non-work life, whether we're shaping our work purchase in a way that says, actually, this is how I want to tailor it to me. I want the freedom built around trust, that service level agreement, to shape the way I work for myself as long as I deliver what you need me to deliver. And I'm, I'm quite a visual person, Tom, and, and as you're talking, and this is a multidisciplinary, multifaceted problem, but as you're talking, I've got this vision in my mind of, um, do you remember when we were at school, because we were at school a long time ago, the Venn diagrams, and Venn diagrams appeared... In I think they still exist, Clance. I think Venn diagrams, I don't think they went out of fashion. Well, I've never used them particularly. Um, I, they're one of those things oh, where I... have a Venn diagram, which is strange, because you're very much more mathematical than I am. Well, when I visualise things, I often visualise a Venn diagram, and I've got mm. one in my mind now, and it's it's got three bubbles, if you like. It's got the organisational need circle, um, and yeah, it's all about the company, and it's about company values, and their company strategic initiatives, and the desired outcomes of the company, the vision and the mission, and all the good stuff we talked about, and we still talk about. And that then intersects with what the individual needs at work. Um, so if you like, it's about the company in this one bubble and then this other bubble intersects with it and it's about me. And we've got that, that lovely overlap, which usually has a different colour and it's a nice elliptical shape. And that, that talks about the overlap between the development plan and talent and marketplace and all that good stuff. I think that overlap's getting a lot bigger. I think the company isn't driving the overlap, the individual is. But right. I also think the third bubble, which is you've talked a bit about there, which is about the needs of society and the demands of society and those external influences. And you talked a bit about Black Lives Matter in one of our podcasts. But there's a whole raft of other things which are coming into this. And, and the pandemic is one of those. And that third bubble is now forming part of our Venn diagram. And the extent to which it overlaps is a little bit unclear at the moment. Yeah. But it takes from that society thing, this idea of communities and what does a community need and the need of the external community and the need of the internal community. And those, those seem to be crossing over a lot. So this is quite a, it's quite a confused Venn diagram at the moment, just through bubbles. But I think that that intersection is becoming less clear and a bit more challenging, particularly if you start in the organisation bubble, if you start from a company perspective. Yeah, and I wonder if this is why lots of people are talking about ESG. I mean, people are talking about ESG as if it's one of those new things. I think it's just another new acronym for uh, things that we've done in the past. But I, you know, I'm working with a client, as I said, on the global DNI strategy, and there are parts of the world that they operate in where LGBT matters. You can't talk about them you can't discuss them. And one of the things that we're talking about is expressing what it means to work inside their community. So when you step in our doors inside our community, virtually or physically, um, this is what you can expect in terms of life experience inside our community. So even if the world around you is at odds with your LGBTQI plus status, uh, come inside our community and you'll feel like you belong. So I, I yes. th th for me, the future of work is about, is about communities. But it's, there's something about this idea of finding a way, organisations finding a way for people to fulfil their personal mission at work, which is exactly what you've been talking about there. 
And if that's at odds with the external environment, then yeah, that creates quite a challenge. But it doesn't mean say it's wrong for someone to want to fulfill their personal mission at work. Now, generally, when we talk about someone's personal mission at work, we're thinking about their professional development, their career development. But increasingly, that external requirement, we talk there about LGBTQ, is coming into the workplace. And, and we are required as organisations to help people see this holistically and to be able to take some of that mission and, and use work as a community to fulfil that. And I don't think that's wrong. I think it's entirely right. And one of the points that I made in my mental health talk to in telling my story uh, last week was in my corporate career, I was a commodity. So I was, uh, how can we develop you for the next big role inside the organization? Uh, how can we develop you to go onwards and upwards? Uh, how can we coach you so that you fit within the norms of our behavioral standard? Not to say that I ever wanted to be badly behaved, but you know, there's certain uh, neurodiverse attributes that weren't acceptable. I had to conform to the norm. And nobody ever said, actually, Tom, are you, do you, do you want to do that? Is that, what's, is that what's good for you? Do you? And I never felt I was able to say, well, I see, you know, for the next three years, I'd just quite like to do what I'm doing because I'm, uh, I want to write in my spare time. But actually, when I come back to you in three years' time, after I've done the writing, can I pick up on my career and, and advancing at that rate? I knew that that would have been absolutely impossible. And, and so I, I want to see us be able to have a conversation around the holistic person and... Uh, what aspirations do they have outside of work to complete the holistic person that we can help encourage, enable and foster inside of work because it will give us an advantage. Does that make sense? It, it absolutely does. So if I take the position of the organisation in exactly what you've said, this is Tom. Tom wants to be able to do what he does really well at work, but no more for the next three years. He doesn't want to progress to some bigger project or whatever because he's got outside interests. That doesn't mean that Tom isn't creating value in the role that he's got, but actually he has a different set of needs. So as a That's worse than that, Clancy. If, if I had done that, sorry to interrupt you, and I come back in three years and had said, okay, I'm ready now, they'd have gone, no, sorry, mate, you missed your time slot. Um, and I think uh, that, that's what I'm trying to get my head around. As an organisation, we would still get value out of Tom in those three years, but what we don't, we, we can't park him in the the parking lot at the end of the runway and, and never come back to him because he's missed his slot. We should have some sort of way of creating um, the opportunity for our employees to be able to understand what is what are the open positions. And often those positions won't look like standard roles anymore. They might be a project, or you've talked about gigs, but it might be a project. And a way for employees to identify those projects, work out their own interests, for the they have the opportunity to put themselves forward and therefore to move outside of their job role to do something different and not, not to stop in their way but but equally for them to have the opportunity to come back and do something different in the future without penalty now as an employer how do we do that I and mean, it can't just all be about the individual and needs we, we are running an organization here so how can we get to a situation where what the organization needs and and the capabilities required in the future and what the individual can provide and is interested in providing, wants to develop into and, and has the opportunity to provide is well matched. And that's a very different way of managing talent to what we have today. And traditionally it was up and out, you know, up or out reward systems, up and out promotion systems, and basically up and out careers. And salaries and job levels prevented people from moving around too much without being promoted. 
and, and managers were sort of stepping in the way of that and saying, well, no, no, you can't go and do that because that's a different area to mine. It takes you outside of the group or you need to be promoted for that. Or actually, that's a backward step and you shouldn't be doing it. So there's, there's something about how do we increase the flexibility and agility within an organisation to be able to accommodate that and everyone's a winner. And that's really difficult to get your head around. Let me tell you what I think it looks like. When I look at organizations, they are too boxed in from a number of perspectives. These are our limits around pay. These are our limits around grade. You have to fall into one of the, the, these chimneys. These are our limits around department. So you can only have a great idea around talent if you're in the in the in the HR function. I think the walls between departments need to come down. There are people in HR who really understand brand and vice versa. The, the, it's it's you know these are this is how we expect you to develop as a leader. Organizations have the comfort blanket of departmental uh, descriptions, departmental titles, departmental responsibilities. HR does this, marketing does that, strategy does that. Uh, people at this grade do this, people at that grade don't, etc., etc. I think a big sledgehammer needs to be taken to much of that. I think you're right, because what you've just set out there is something which is way too detailed, way too granular. It needs to be this, 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 and this. There's 28 different things you need to do to do this job, and then there's 29 different things for that job, and blah, blah. And as companies grow and things start to develop, that stuff makes no sense. And we've talked in the past about um, um and yeah, the way to make people wear the right thing is to keep adding lines and lines and lines and lines to your dress code. And actually, that ends up making no sense. What, 28-page dress code? I have to check what kind of pants I can put on this morning? No, actually, what we're saying is, this is the outcome we're after. And I think it's the same with um, job descriptions and uh, descriptions of what needs to happen internally. It's just become very detailed and granular. And it's a little bit outdated now. We need to rationalize it, but the challenge is how. I think, so what I think, so I grew up in the 90s in corporate world, and I think we were paternalistic as, as organizations. So it was very parent-child, and I think we think we're not parent-child any longer because we do really cool things like dress down and open plan offices and beanbags. But the underlying culture, the underlying relationship is still parent-child. And uh, we won't change unless we create a less hierarchically focused community where the power of responsibility and the levels of trust are much more evenly distributed. So let me try this one out with you. So I love Josh Burson. I read a lot of Josh Burson. Oh, not your crush from America. Oh, this I know. My, my American crush. I love Josh Burson. <sighs> and he, he writes some good stuff. Um, and a while ago, I was reading something about, uh, I think he was writing about, actually about the future of work. And uh, he was talking about performance management, and particularly around high potential. Which is largely bollocks in my, sorry, I'm allowed one swear word a podcast. Performance so management saying, is largely bollocks, but carry on. So he was saying, well, five, ten years ago, we would say, an organization, we being an organization, would mandate every high potential needs to have a development plan. I was like, oh, really? And then a couple of years later, we started to say as organizations, well, actually, you know, it's not just high potentials, because who's to say they're high potential? Why have that all salaried employees need to have a development plan? And, and actually, we need to have a discussion about that development plan. Anyway, very holistic now. Salaried employees, development plan. Because if we do that, we do it for everybody, we'll spot the potential and we'll have a nice chat. But actually, I think the forward-thinking mantra now needs to be, we do career development, and everyone here can develop their career. And that, that moves away from 
a sort of tactical action. We've got a plan, we've got actions, we're going to work to it, we're going to talk about it. Actually, make it more holistic, make it more encompassing, make it more outcome focused. We do career development and it's open to everyone. But in order to do that, you actually need to have a look at what is the job architecture in your organization, because that only works if you don't have this rigid where you need these competencies to get to this level and then you have to spend two years learning these competencies and move to that level. Because that takes you back to that original, uh, we've got high potential and everyone's got a plan. You sort of need now to break all that down. But the, the question I think for organizations is, although it could be really liberating, it does force managers to be much more strategic in their thinking and much less selfish. And that's a real challenge. But, but what you've just highlighted, and so I, I, I might... I might develop a bit of a crush on your Josh as well, is that the, <laughs> the um, we'll have him fighting over us at some point, Clancy, I just know it. Um, the performance management system that you just described of old is, is just full of bias and prejudice. You know, what is potential, you know, in order to, and people say, well, you know, past performance is an indicator of future performance. Yeah, but what, what about socioeconomic influences on the person? What about the fact that the people that, uh, you know, did they have the same start in life or the same start in their career? Or did they have the same sort of wind beneath their wings to prove their potential uh, that the person next to them had? Likely not. And what about the uh, inherent unconscious bias that's sitting in the in the person judging them, because I I could name you tens of people who have been deemed not high potential or less high potential in comparison, and the fact that they've had to overcome the odds or much great much more, or the fact that they've they've not been uh, accepted as part of the cult in which they find themselves. Uh, has led to them being deemed not as high potential. So, yeah, I'm not actually sure what I'm saying there. Nice. That gives us quite a neat loop back, actually, to something you talked about earlier, Tom, which is about, you talked about cults and clans. And something I'm observing real life in an organisation today is that those almost artificial hierarchies that we build because we have a structure in the organisation aren't what's going to help us get into the future. And actually it's the informal networks and those informal teams and relationships which come together, which are much more nourishing for the individuals involved and much more productive and um, effective for the organization. But in order to let that happen, you have to be quite brave. It's relatively liberating. You have to have managers who think in the right way to let it happen and are able to let go of their teams to let them move in a different way. So, fixed teams might not be the right answer to a particular project that needs solved but teams of people who want to work together who are passionate about the mission that this project is trying to solve and have the right capabilities who therefore are keen to come together and work together then form a new clan a new group um, and they, they they sort of find their they found their people in doing that so you get more engaged employees who actually are driven to want to create a much better solution for the organization um, and Actually, you are then changing the feel of what we're doing. But that does cut across the hierarchies we've got. And, and moving away from those is, is quite challenging. Well, and it's something even more simplistic than that, Clancy, and I, I, I totally agree with you. Our office is based just outside of Reading. So we're going to limit the pool of talent to which we uh, look for this position to somebody that's willing to commute to, Red, commute to Reading. Yeah. Now, there's a whole question around what 
physical infrastructure do organizations create for themselves post-COVID? But I'm absolutely certain, I absolutely pray that non-geo-specific roles will open up more diverse talent, more, uh, more relevant talent uh, in, from different places around the world and build and grow and foster those networks that you absolutely describe. And so I think there is a liberation which is rather than I come and do a job for you, I, I manage my work and my outputs and my personal mission in a way that helps you get what you need from me. That's, that's what I'm hoping. And it becomes a more individually tailored arrangement, not yes. based on geography or what the lasting covenant in this role looked like or some other random um, factor, but actually becomes around what are you trying to achieve and what can I contribute to help you get there? And, and that, you know, that, that is a very different equation. So let me see if I can summarize what I think we've said. Much more genuinely, authentically human-orientated working environments. The working environment can be virtual. Uh, we will have or we will need to have different, more individualized and tailored working experiences. I believe that we should lease ourselves rather than become employees because uh, it's a much more positive and healthy uh, psychological contract. I think we should lease ourselves and work to a service level agreement. Uh, the evolution of the gig economy means that we will have non-geo specific roles. We will build communities around those things in which networks in order to deliver things are much more interdepartmental. The boundaries and walls between departments are less visible and rigidly enforced. And the hierarchies will be flatter and we shouldn't have to feel like we all have to sign up for the one size fits all cafeteria benefits when we want the equivalent of bringing our own lunch. Does any of that make sense? It makes a huge amount of sense, but I'm laughing because I'm also thinking, oh, those poor chief people officers and HR directors. <laughs> well, I well see. I think that's a whole new episode on what is the future of of the talent department or the people department. Because I said it in the last episode, and I'll say it again. I'll have my Gerald Rat in a moment twice. I think HR is largely structured to perpetuate. Uh, products, services, processes that we should really question. And a lot of them exist because everybody else has got them. And actually, who's going to be the first to say, we don't want a traditional performance management system and we want to take a scythe to our reward and benefit and just make it like hiring a lot of consultants. Well, Harvard Business Review just just published something in August, actually, about the 21 HR jobs of the future. And yeah, they've done a little table, it's all brilliant, and it talks about technological advancement and, and job titles. And, and of these 21 jobs, I didn't recognise any of them as existing in, in a standard organisation today. Uh, that filled me with a huge amount of excitement, but also a significant amount of terror being someone who leads people teams. Because, like, wow, in the next five years, we follow the HBR view, uh, yeah, I will have to be looking for people with completely different capability sets. And frankly, I'm not too sure at the moment where I find them. So uh, there was one which was the algorithm bias monitor. Oh, dear God. Uh, so someone who would look at the algorithms used in understanding uh, people who applied for roles and ensuring those algorithms themselves are not subject to bias. Now, that's a mathematical job. 
Um, so that's not something you would usually at the moment see within an HR team. You might see the data analyst team, that might be allied to the finance department. Actually, what, what this is saying is we will use AI to our advantage. One way we can use AI is to help us to understand who, what capabilities we need in the organization and, and what individuals who have that capability look like. But if you use AI, you are basing it on algorithms and algorithms are built by people and therefore yep. there could be a bias. So if that is one of the ones that, that really stuck out for me. That's incredible. I think at this point, you and I should hand over to Dr. Keith and see what our learned colleague has to say about all of this. So is this where I go and get a cup of tea and, and sit back and listen? Yeah, I think so. Is that all right? And so I'm now joined by... <laughs> is that fucked it up already? Because <laughs> my chair squeaked. <laughs> oh, my chair squeaked. <clears throat> Serious. Serious. So, Dr. Keith, could you tell us who you are, what you do, and where you come from? Oh, thanks, Tom. Hello. Uh, yeah, I'm Dr. Keith. Um, I am the Associate Dean for Future Students and Product Development at Aston Business School here in Birmingham. That sounds very posh. And I have to confess that uh, it's inadvertent bring your dog to work day, talking about the future of work. So Gaspar is next to us. So if listeners hear heavy breathing, it is Gaspar because he can see squirrels from the window of the cupboard in the forest in France. Um, Dr. Keith, you were able to listen to Clancy and myself. Um, to what extent do you agree or disagree with what we were talking about? How do you see things in the future of work? Um, so it was a really interesting conversation. I'm really glad you, you brought me in. I hope I can kind of add to it. Um, I found the, the conversation fascinating and the, there are so many different challenges that are facing the world of work as we go forward. And I think there are lots of things around how we manage people, how we manage talent. And there's going to be lots of um, no right way of doing things and lots of unpicking of things and, and exploratory um, ways of moving forward. I think one of the biggest things for me at the moment is thinking about how, as a society, we're obviously all, we're all living longer, everyone's healthier, which is great. Um, and that means that in the workplace, we've ended up with lots and lots of different generations of people all in one place, and they've all got different um, identities around what it means to, to be at work. And so we might still have mm -hmm. people there who think that a job's for life. And then we've got them working alongside millennials who are thinking, I could do 18 months here and bag some skills and disappear. So there's this kind of real mix of people in the workplace at the moment. Um, and so kind of how we move forward in embracing technology and kind of enhancing people's skills is going to be a really interesting couple of years, I think. So do you think we're moving to a workplace where we're much more focused on skills rather than people's track records or past experience or are we moving to a place of work where people employees have to be more agile yeah i think so and i think the we've seen that a lot with covid this year the fact that people aren't all in one place at the same time has really rooted out the um kind of the middle management layer where actually the, these people were traditionally there to monitor and to um to to assess what people were up to and the fact that we're all working remotely all of a sudden means that we're becoming far more out, um, output based. So what I can contribute, the skills I have that enable me to contribute, then become the focus. Oh, that's interesting. So do you think we're becoming more autonomous? 
So we probably are, I think, yes. But there's, there's a couple of different strands within that because I think the expectation that we might have looking at how people might build portfolio careers based on their skills, um, that requires a different type of job architecture. So we've built our organizations around having people who perhaps are generalists or they're specialists, but they've got this broad remit of something that they're responsible for five days a week, um, 52 weeks of the year. Um, and I think by ramping up the autonomy and shifting a focus onto skill almost speeds us up and facilitates this shift towards where I can add lots of value to you, but um, only in a very, that very narrow sense or in a very, um, in a very specific way for maybe for a time limited project or for um, a, a one day a week sort of arrangement. And then where you might have had someone salaried for, for five days a week, then actually you'd benefit more from having five days worth of five different people. Do you think we are moving to this concept of talent leasing? And in doing that, are we going to build up a bank of skills as employees rather than a sort of more linear CV? Yeah, I, th I think that's where we're going to end up, to be fair we'll end up with people who are able to um, are able to present themselves as having this this conglomeration of skills or this um, this portfolio of evidence of, of what they've been doing uh, in their history to date what's interesting though is that then the responsibility i think for how and who we recruit the the power is shifting and the responsibility is shifting so no longer am i looking at a job spec and thinking oh I could do that bit and I couldn't really do that bit and I, I want to apply for it and I wonder if they'll give it to me. Instead I'm going to have to be far more aware and conscious of what I can bring and what I can offer um, because you might be looking for a solution and I might be the, the left field candidate to, to solve a problem that you didn't know was there. So does that not mean that organizations are going to have to be much braver and more creative in their hiring? Yeah, I think so. And I think we're going to end up with this recognition of the, the value of, of people's networks. And so the informal networks that we have um, as professionals um, across industries, across sectors, across locations, um, and that might end up being replicated in the organization. So rather than me having a, a direct team that I'm working to, to um, that I'm working in or that I, I have reporting to me, then there'll be far more fluidity in, in how we achieve our overall um, goals for organizations then i think that there's the we almost need to wind back and undo the the structure and the bureaucracy that they've almost been encouraged to create so we have lots of people working in silos in different divisions in our organizations um, because it makes sense and because we map out oh we've got an hr function a marketing function operations and there's never the twain shall meet um, and so if we unwind all of that and undo the infrastructure, then we then end up in a far more free-flowing um, network-based environment. But that's a massive shift for a lot of organizations to, um, to engage in, particularly your big multinationals. I think if we were to start from scratch and, and start a, a small new organization, then it's easy because there's like five or 10 of us. But if you've got thousands of people to undo all of the, um, the self-reinforcing bureaucracy you've been building for years is going to be very difficult. So, Dr. Keith, what do you think this means for leadership then, if we're working that much more fluid network-orientated working environment? So our leaders then need different skills. So we're already seeing, I mean, in the MBA market, for example, 
um, we're seeing a, a, a reduced focus on the hard skills, the accountancy, the, uh, the numbers, um, the output orientation. And we're seeing a shift towards the, the I'm doing air quotes here, that the soft skills, I hate that term, but the soft skills that people need in order to get stuff done. Um, and so leaders, therefore, need to be more transformative. They need to be um, more relationship um, led uh, and people need to be able to um, kind of tie their, their colours to a leader's mast. Um, and we're not going to do that if there's no humanity in there. So bearing all that in mind, do you think, you know, I suggested we were having a moment of calibration. Is this a moment of reckoning? Is this a point that we'll look back to in five years time and think, well, that's when so much shifted, uh, so much changed? That's a really good question. Um, and I think we probably will look back in 10 years, 15 years time and say 2020 was the year where we had to do things differently. Um, there's obviously you see lots of memes flying around on Twitter and stuff of, oh, who, who advanced your technological innovations in your organization? Was it your CTO? Was it your CFO? Or was it COVID-19? And how many businesses is that really going to apply to? I think it's going to be a lot. We've had to change the way we work. We've been forced into this, um, this instability and this vulnerability. Um, and a lot of organisations, thankfully, have managed to, um, to kind of grab the bull by both horns and to, um, to, to adapt. And so what that means is that the way we'll look in 10 years' time is completely different to how we looked 10 years ago. So as I sit here with a 50 kilogram dog um, panting in the background, trying to chase squirrels, uh, and I'm working online, do you think that, or to what extent do you think, our approach to work has changed, our psychology towards work, our views of work? What, what, what has this year meant for that? I think this year has been a, almost a recalibration or a, a pause and reflect um, for what work means to us. And again, I mean, I mentioned before about this, um, where does the power sit between organisations and employees? And, and I think we've almost realised this year that we as employees might have more clout than, than we realised, or maybe that we're not willing to make the sacrifices that we used to make. So I know I've got friends who are actively leaving London now because that two hour commute on, uh, on the underground isn't all that appealing anymore. And to, to kind of to have that forced on you because all of a sudden you've got to log on from home. Um, I mean, equally, we've, we've had organisations who've really struggled with this and they've not been able to be agile um, because their cultures have been so kind of micromanager focused um, that to then shift very flexible is it's quite difficult for them what that might look like 10 15 20 years on um we'll probably see more of um organizations accessing a global talent pool so if i can sit here 30 minutes from work and, and work from home then why can't i sit in the sunshine in spain and do that why can't we get people from developing countries who've got the same perhaps number of qualifications or similar types of experiences um why can't we get them to dial in um into the city or, or to wherever so i think there's going to be another recalibration that will come as this kind of um this global talent pool um, really starts to become more powerful i absolutely agree with that and i think the implications for leadership and leading in that world are enormous but at the same oh, God, time yeah. massively exciting 
Yeah, they are. It's a really exciting time to be in a leadership position. But I think we need to make sure that our leaders are supported um, to, to kind of get through this transition period. It's a very different way of leading, a very different way of managing. Um, and we can't just expect people to switch overnight to be able to perform that way. So there's, there's a massive piece in, in how we educate and how we support our leaders that way. Yeah, I think that uh, if we look at uh, work changes on all fronts from the extra focus on inclusion, the physical changes in the working environment require a different type of leadership. I can see many more organizational budgets being shifted towards leadership uh, leadership development in the coming months and years. In fact, I think it's already started to happen. Dr. Keith, thank you so much uh, for joining myself and Gaspar today. He uh, really appreciates your contribution and he apologizes for, for panting and whining in the background. <laughs> Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Look, if you ask me of all people to talk about the future of work, then it comes with a health warning and the risk for potential bias. Think about what I do for a living. I'm motivated intellectually, spiritually, even financially to think about a future of work which is more open, more inclusive, more vibrant, more dynamic, more innovative, and frankly, more fun. It's what I spend my time working with organizations to achieve. That said, I do believe the events of 2020 have once and for all created a tipping point in which raw humanity is in the workplace and it's never leaving. So what does that look like? I think it looks like us being able to finally say as employees, I want to manage and will manage my work, my outputs in a way, in a place that works for me and not within the confines of your organizational norms, as long as I deliver what you need me to deliver. I also think it looks like the psychological contract changing once and for all from being master-servant, parent-child, to one of true equal partnership between employer and employee managed through open dialogue. A meeting of mutual expectations which are individualized in the direction of the employee as much as possible. I think organizational initiatives around inclusion will soon become a question of rights for the individual. I have the right to be respected and understood for whom I am. Brown bag learning lunches and a drinks reception for International Women's Day simply won't cut it any longer. This will also put organizations at odds with the society in which they are situated and probably also involve them in socio-political situations they'd long avoided. Perhaps, most excitingly, non-geospecific roles will give talent access to lifestyles they'd craved for years and years, and at the same time give organisations access to talent it didn't know existed, in parts of the world it never thought it would operate in. And frankly, organisations are going to need that agility and flexibility to fill roles they didn't think they'd ever need. Which makes us realize that humans will still be working on their own biases in the workplace when they have to think about the biases they inadvertently weave into the machines they are building to replace them. Culturally and structurally, I do love the idea of organizations being non-hierarchical communities of work aligned around a compelling purpose. 
Imagine being able to resource your organizational strategies from a pool of fluid, vibrant, diverse perspectives, skills and backgrounds rather than thinking about how you're going to have to make the organizational structures, people and departments that you're lumbered with work to fit the delivery of the strategy. Imagine the flexibility of being able to lease talent to respond in an agile way to a world which never stops changing. What's most exciting for me personally is thinking about a future of work which is psychologically and mentally safe and enriching. One in which we no longer have to hide our neurodiversity, our emotional diversity and who we truly are as people. And by that I mean the big labels around gender, sexual orientation and faith, those are just table stakes. Hi, I'm Tom. I have good days and bad days. I have sad days. I have vibrant days. I live your values. Accept me for who I am. At the start of this podcast, I said this is not a one-off conversation. We do not have crystal balls and frankly the world is moving so fast that we do have to calibrate in real time when it comes to the future of work. But I do think there are trends which are long enough standing that we can look at them and say they will form a big part of the future and therefore we need to work with them and make them happen. This is a conversation we will come back to. This was Hysterionics. You have been listening to Tom Crawford, Clancy Murphy and Dr. Keith Schofield. Please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn and do suggest any ideas that you've got for future content or special guests. In the meantime, please tell your friends and stay safe.